in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O God, open my lips, and my mouth shall declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will your delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sort of. There we go. Okay. All right. That's on me. Hey, listen, um, I want you to imagine with me here just at the beginning after hearing that. Imagine, imagine that you've worked through something really difficult in your life, something maybe it's grievous, heinous, whatever, and, and you did it in a, in a good way. And then on the other side, that you decided to write it all down. And then not only did you write it down, but you handed it to Annie, our worship leader here, and she set it to music, right? And then we began to sing your confession, right? I mean, can you imagine that? And then can you imagine that it goes so well, you know, and it does such a great job of setting it to music that it goes like global in essence, right? And so now we're, the, the church family across all time, essentially, is now reading and singing your confession of your darkest moment in your life. Welcome to Psalm 51. I mean, that's what this is. I mean, this is David's deepest, darkest moment. The moment of greatest shame. And we sing about it. We started a new series last week here called Singing the Psalms. And at each pastor this summer will be teaching on a different theme within that. Uh, singing from aspects of our lives that we need to sing about. And today we're talking about repentance. And I want you to think about this. This is really important because you can think about the background, which we're going to look at briefly here, you know, the adultery and the murder for David. And it'd be really easy for you to say, well, that's not my life. But the issue here isn't the size of the sin. It's the pattern of repentance. That's what we're going to see this morning. It doesn't matter how small the thing is that you're dealing with this morning or how big it is this past week. What matters is the pattern. And David gives that pattern to us, friends. And I, I want you to know, like, I've preached this sermon several times. I preached about 11, 12 years ago, right after we started, and then again three or four years ago. But there was something that I saw in this go-around that I've never seen before that had personal impact upon my life. I'm going to share that with you as well. But I want us to have ears to hear and eyes to see what, what does David teach us about the way of repentance. Incredibly personal, but we can make it personal as well. So, in light of that, there are really several sermons in here, but I'm only going to pick one for the next 30, 25, 30 minutes. And I want to ask this question. This is really going to be the framing question. That is, 
That is, what does repentance bring us? And there are two things I think the answer to that question brings. Number one, it brings reconciliation. First vertically, then horizontally. And then second, transformation. Reconciliation and then transformation. Let's jump in with the first thing here, reconciliation. And as I mentioned here, the background for this, and actually we don't have that many historical backgrounds on the Psalms, but we do on this one. And this one is David. It's in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and it's a very familiar story about how King David one day was spying over the other side of the palace walls because the palace is at the very highest point in Jerusalem. And so he noticed that there was a woman, Bathsheba, who was bathing on her rooftop. Back then, rooftops weren't pointed the way they are today. Uh, They were flat. And this was common. And, And he spied her, and it says that he desired her. And so in a patriarchal culture with a massive power differential between the king and this woman, She really didn't have much of a choice. And it's very clear from Scripture. It's very clear that the onus of what happened there in the adultery is really on David and what he did with his power and how he abused his power. And so she conceives a child being brought in, sleeping with her, and she tells him, and you know the story, that he covers it up. He doesn't come clean. He covers it up. And in the process of covering it up, it comes to the point where he has to have Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, killed to complete the cover-up. By the way, Uriah was someone that he knew personally. Can you imagine? And so what happens next? God sends a prophet, Nathan. And Nathan tells David one day a story, and the story goes like this. Uh, there was a wealthy and powerful man who had pretty much everything except for one lamb that a poor man had. And so he said, I want that man's poor lamb, or lamb as well for that poor man. And so he took that lamb and said, David, what do you think about that story? And it says that David was enraged. He says that man should be pretty much made dead, essentially is what David says there. And Nathan looks at David and says, you're the man. This is you, David. And David begins the process of repentance. What do we learn from that? In the reconciliation, there are a couple steps. Here's the first one. We see this right away here at the very beginning of the psalm. And that is, you must know God truly. You must know God rightly, who He actually is. Look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Notice this. David doesn't begin his, his, uh, his repentance here by saying, Oh, what was me? Right? He doesn't say, Oh, man, I... I, I you know, self-flagellation. I, I wish this hadn't happened. No, where does he begin? He begins with the character of God. That's his beginning point. His focus is not on him. His focus is on who God is. And what is it in particular about God's character that he is laser-like focused on at the very beginning here of his pathway of repentance? And the answer is, it is the character of God, friends. It is the character of God. And not just any aspect of his character. It is his mercy and his grace. That's where he starts. Now, some of you hear that and you say, this is the Old Testament. I thought God was a God of justice and he was a God of harshness and and he was sort of a a distant God. And then you get to Jesus in the New Testament and there you see a Jesus who's a God who's close to us. And we see grace and mercy. And I want to tell you this morning that both are true, but both are caricatures because they're not completely true. Jesus is a judge, but God of the Old Testament is merciful and gracious, you see. Moses knew this as well. There's a scene where, where Moses says, I want to see you. He's getting to know God. 
And he says, I want to see you. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, listen to how God responds to him. He says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love. There it is again. Right there. I said earlier that I preached this before, but the penny dropped for me. This is where it dropped for me. I realized that most of my life, my pattern of repentance is this. Whether it's that I'm caught or whether I confess on my own, my tendency, honestly, my tendency is that when I see God's face, I essentially see neutrality. I know theologically, I know that Jesus has paid for the sin, and so I don't necessarily see a furious God. I don't even necessarily see a, 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 a God with a frown on his face. But what I don't see is kindness. That's not where I start. And man, that really, I had to really uh, deal with that this week. That often, when, in my confession, I don't start with a God of kindness. You see, David was, we, we look at David's desires here. You know, as James 1.15 says, that, that sin actually begins with desire, wrong desires. It leads to sin, and sin leads to death. This is something that David knew. And so we know about David's old desires. We now actually know about David's new desires. But here's the question. Do we know about God's desires for us in the midst of repentance? So I want to ask you a question this morning. It's a question that I've had to wrestle with. I want to ask you this question. And that is, right now, there may be something right now. You came into this place. There's something right now that you are wrestling with, struggling with. Maybe it was last night. Maybe it was this past week. What was it? And I want to ask you. What does God's face look like right now? You have been exposed. You're dealing with shame. What is God's face to you right now? According to David, the only right face is kindness. If you are in Christ, his face, he's prejudiced. That's what I'm trying to say. He is prejudiced towards you. And so I don't want us to move on because we need to, yet, because we need to see this. I think for a lot of us, personally, right now, we need to see that, that God has a, has a face of kindness towards us. And this is a man who's guilty of adultery and murder. And he knows the face of kindness. Wow. How much more so for you with where you're at right now? That's such good news. And I think that's the key to understanding what happens next. Because it is with that that allows him to truly confess. Verses 3 through 5. Look at it with me again. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David continues to focus on the character of God. Even as he turns his attention now to what he has done, I want you to see that in the midst of noting that, he is still focused on the God's character here. Right? He says in verse 4, he says, You are just. He says, Against you and you only have I sinned. Now, by the way, you may be wondering, wait a minute. I thought he sinned against Bathsheba, against Uriah. I thought he, could, he sinned against a lot of other people. The answer is yes. But remember, this is a prayer that he's praying vertically to God. He's praying, and so he's dealing with the source, right? He's dealing with the source of holiness. He's dealing with the source of justice, the one who is just. And so he knows that all sin ultimately goes back to him, which means what? It means that when we violate someone, okay? And so maybe you're married this morning, and you can think of a time where you did this with your spouse, or you're single with a friend, or with a colleague in your workplace. Maybe it's with a complete and perfect stranger. 
But when we violate them, what we're doing is we're ultimately violating God. Why? Because people are made in the image of God, you see. And even if we think, well, I haven't done anything to anyone else, it's just myself, you are made in the image of God. And when you violate yourself, when you violate your own purity, when you violate your own integrity, you violate the very character, you violate God himself. And so that is what he's doing here. He's saying, look, this isn't just a freak event. He says, this is my nature, you see. He says, I, I need to deal with my nature. I remember in seminary, I was uh, reading through a book called Confessions by St. Augustine. It is one of the classics of Western civilization. If you've never read it, let me encourage you to do so. It really is the basis even of modern psychology, though most people don't even realize that. And in in Confessions, one of the the most uh, poignant passages in there is that when he's age 16, now he's not yet a Christian. He's still a pagan, essentially. But at age 16, he and some friends are walking through uh, a courtyard, and they see uh, a grove of pear trees. And it's actually behind a wall. And it says that he and his friends jump the wall and they begin to steal as many pears as they can. And as a Christian later on, he went back in his mind to that event and he asked this question, why do we do it? What, what was the, the onus behind that? What, what drove us to do that? He says it certainly was not hunger. It certainly, we weren't hungry today. It certainly wasn't poverty either. Like We were fairly well off. That wasn't our situation what drove us to do it? And he says, I know what it was. It was self-assertion, willfulness. Because it was forbidden. There was a wall. And when I saw the wall, I knew I wanted to pair. Oh my gosh. And whether you're conscious of that or not, in our sin, this is how it works. We have a willfulness that says, I will be king. I will be the captain of my destiny. I will determine right and wrong, in essence. At the heart of every person, Christian and non-Christian, when we go to that place, we go to a place where it says, I will be Lord of my own life. Augustine was right. And David knows that, that in his character, that he's dealing with a sin nature. He's dealing with a a self-assertion, a willfulness that has to be dealt with. And so he comes before a just God and he says, deal with it. And I want you to see the other thing here, the next step in this confession here. I want you to know something. David never blame shifts. Did you notice that? David never says, well, you don't know the pressures of what it's like to be a king, right? You don't know what it's like to be a CEO or a pastor. He doesn't say, well, you don't know about my, my upbringing here. Uh, about, about what it was like to live in a home where, where, you know, fill in the blank, whatever that might be. You, you don't know. I mean, well, by the way, God, why did you put Bathsheba right down there after all? I mean, doesn't, no, he doesn't do any of that. When I do uh, marriage counseling, Chris and I do this together, or if I'm doing uh, counseling with anyone, married or single, one of the things that I will do, and I've used this with our kids, my kids know this as well, uh, I will say, draw the circle around you. And what do you do? You deal first with those in the circle. Before you deal with anyone else, you, you could be violated deeply by someone this morning, and you know that. But what you are first responsible for is how you respond to that. Or maybe you're the one that's the perpetrator, and before you point any fingers anywhere else, you should deal with everything within the circle. And that's a great place, because David teaches us that. David, David is aware that he has to own his sin. He alone has to own what took place. And he cannot choose to cover it up. Listen to this great quote. To strut into a courtroom, guilty, and claim innocence, it's not power but weakness. 
to refuse to acknowledge failure is not success but self-deception. To resist repentance before God is not intelligence but folly. To be puffed up with pride in the face of wrongdoing is not to become bigger but to become hollow. Isn't that good? That's so good. This is really, has been really brought home to me in a very personal way in the last year. And, and I, I've not said anything about this because um, it's needed some time. But, but most of you here who know me know that I used to work for a ministry called Ravi Zacharias International Ministry. And most of you who know about that know about Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias is considered or was considered a modern-day C.S. Lewis. I worked with him. I didn't just work with him. I broke bread with him in my home. Uh, he was more than an acquaintance is what I'm saying. We worked closely together for four years. I was doing evangelism and apologetics alongside him globally as well as here in the United States. And as most of you know, I mean, it, it, it wasn't just Christianity Today. It was the Washington Post and New York Times. The allegations came out about sexual abuse on his part as a perpetrator. Allegations that have since been proven to be true. And I remember several months ago, uh, I was in a conversation, and, and someone said, well, you know, yeah, but wasn't Ravi sort of like King David? You know, King David, uh, King David, you know, he's been forgiven by the Lord. I said, but, but David confessed. Ravi went to his grave a year ago, never confessing. And there are now women around the world who have experienced abuse and have never had the opportunity to receive an offer of forgiveness, reconciliation. The ministry was worth more than $40 million a year, and today it essentially doesn't exist 10 months later because of what happened. That's the difference between coming clean and hiding. I want you to hear that quote again because it's so good. Hear it again. To strut into a courtroom guilty and claim innocence is not power but weakness. To refuse to acknowledge failure is not success but self-deception. To resist repentance before God is not intelligence but folly. To be puffed up with pride in the face of wrongdoing is not to become bigger but to become hollow. It comes from a book called Cries of the Heart. And the author, Ravi Zacharias. This is where the rubber meets the road, friends. It doesn't matter how much good theology you know. It doesn't matter how much you know and how many stories you know about what's happened to other people. You can write books about this stuff. But if you don't practice it, you will never experience the joy of your salvation. You will never know what it means to truly live in peace and wholeness. We have to learn to be truth-tellers. Repentance literally means to do a 180-degree turnaround and to tell the truth. And, and what David does, what he teaches us, you have to first tell the truth about yourself. And listen, that's not enough, though, because here's the last step in reconciliation, and that is the actual forgiveness itself. It's in verses 7 through 9. Look with me again. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and 
I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. This is remarkable because of something that when you hear this, and I'm going to say, here's the critical word, almost really the, almost the most critical word in the whole psalm. You'll say, what? I'm not even sure what that, what that means. What is it? It's the word hyssop. Now, what is hyssop? Hyssop was a bush, actually, in the ancient Near East, and you would break the branches off, and the branches would be used to be dipped into water or something else, almost like a paintbrush, in essence. And there's this one scene, it's in Exodus, it's a very famous scene, it's the scene of Passover, where, where God has said that I'm bringing the angel of death, I'm going to judge, uh, judge the Egyptians. Before there's an Exodus, there has to be a judgment, and here's what I'm going to do. And so I'm going to send judgment, and the firstborn of all those in Egypt will die, except those who are covered with the blood of the lamb. And so he instructed them to take the hyssop branch and to dip it into the blood and then to put it on the doorpost of the homes in Israel, where the Israelites were enslaved, their section of Egypt. He says, when the angel of death comes over, it will pass over. That's where the word comes from. It will pass over you, and you will be free from the sentence of death. What is David saying? David is saying that you have to atone for this. You can't simply look the other way. It has to be dealt with, you see. And what gives David the confidence? What gives David the power to believe by faith that that will be atoned for? Later on, he talks about sacrifice. And so he's well aware of the sacrificial system and the temple in Jerusalem here. But he's looking beyond that. He's looking to a broken and contrite heart, as he says. He's not looking just to the temple. He's looking by faith into the future, into something else. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we know the answer to that question. We know what he was looking to by faith. He's looking to the one who would be the once and for all final sacrifice Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ. Purge me with hyssop. Cover me with the blood of the Lamb, and I will be made whiter than snow. I will be made new, he says here. That is his confidence. I want to ask you this morning, is that yours? Because if it is your confidence, it will give you the confidence, it will give you the courage to own up to whatever it is that you need to own up with, right? And you know, yes, there could be repercussions with your confession. Yes, there will be. I mean, David knew that. I mean, if you know the story of David, you know the repercussions, even on the other side of all this, of what happened to his family. But joy returned, which leads here to the last thing I want to talk about, and it's transformation. I spent a lot more time on the first thing because I think it's incredibly important that we had to do that. But I want to end here with reconciliation. Look at verse 10 with me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me. The word there in Hebrew is bara. And it goes all the way back to Genesis. Genesis, which means creation, bara. In other words, what he's saying is, make me new, recreate me. One of the cool things about our faith, friends, isn't that you're simply saved one day, and now it's up to you to figure out how to live up to that faith, quote-unquote, like, like to make sure that, that you were worth the sacrifice. No, the gospel isn't simply something that saves you. The gospel is how you live your life every day. We live in light of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and we say, renew a right spirit within me. Recreate me. Change me. Make me more and more. That's transformation. Make me more and more like you on a daily basis. And it begins here, he says, with this pathway of repentance here. 
And I think one of the most important words in this whole passage beyond uh, hyssop is right there in verse 1, in steadfast love. In the Hebrew, it's chesed. The idea here is unconditional love. And the good news for us, friends, is that God's Son was forsaken so that you and I would not be forsaken. At the cross, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time that he never called him Father. It's because he was forsaken so that God's judgment, the wrath face, the disappointed face, in essence, would be on Jesus, not on you and me. Instead, we receive his kindness. We receive his grace on the other side of knowing our repentance. But I want you to see the last thing here, and this is where we close. Because of how he transforms us inwardly, we have impact on our community outwardly. Think about this. We didn't have time to look at it here. But in verses 12, or excuse me, verses 13 through 16, what does he say there? Teach me your ways so that I might teach others. In other words, what is David doing? He says, I want to be a storyteller. I want to tell your story. And so he gives us Psalm 51 as the story. And even this morning, we are telling David's story. I mean, we are living into what he had hoped for in those verses, that he would teach sinners the way of God and the way of repentance. And here we are doing exactly that thousands of years later. He's still having impact on us. He is a storyteller. Part of what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ is to know your story and to have such confidence in the mercy of Christ have his reputation rather than your own, his pride rather than your own, that you're now free to freely admit the truth about who you are and then to turn that into a story. For God never wastes pain. And he always tells a new story within our old stories, friends. And this is what Psalm 51 is. But I love how it ends. In verses 18 through 19, we see the impact of that choice. Verses 18 through 19 says, Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Do you know what is happening here? This is the king. The king is the one who's confessing. By the way, how much more so can we confess if the king is confessing, right? But the king is confessing. And look what he says here. He says, if, if I confess, if the king who represents God's position on earth, his image on earth, if I can do this, I will have impact on Zion. I will have impact on culture, you see. Here's the point. This is where I end. We are culture shapers and molders. And when we practice repentance, when we choose that pathway rather than the pathway of remorse or regret, which is, I'm sorry, or I wish I hadn't got caught, well, the difference between saying, I'm sorry and forgive me, you see, or that was a mistake versus I've committed a sin against you, a violation here. You see the difference there. And what David teaches us is the pathway of coming clean, coming whole, and he says, Zion, the place of God's people where they will prosper and they will experience joy. They will experience prosperity. They will experience joy. Why? Because right confession has been done here. Here's where I want to end. You all are kings and queens, okay? I know that because you're made in the image of God. And by definition, because you're made in the image of God, who is Lord of the heavens and earth, that makes you a king, that makes you a queen. But in addition to that, what that means is that you have people of influence, that you are a person of influence to other people in your lives. You're saying, no, I'm not, Scott. I'm, I'm not a pastor like you. Right? Or I'm not a, a CEO of a business or a manager of a corporation. 
or whatever you think a leader is, listen, if you know anything, if you're brand new to City Church, you need to know this. One of the things we teach here is that all people are made to be leaders. And it could be that you are simply a leader in your home. You're a parent, and you're saying, man, I'm here 24-7. I'm going to tell you, you are a king or a queen. You are an influencer. Oh, Scott, you don't understand. I'm single, and I'm just, you know, I'm a cog in the wheel in my, in my workplace. No, you have people that are watching you. You have friends. You have a place of influence. And the question is, what will they see as you live out Psalm 51 or potentially do so? My hope and prayer is that we will be people like David. We will not need to cover up because we will know that our sin has been covered by Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. And therefore, we're now free to be God's people and free to be open and honest, but in a way that brings joy to our bones once again. Let's pray. Father, it's easy to hear this today and and to say, yes, I want that. But between the Sundays, maybe later on today, here on the Sabbath, there will be an opportunity to come clean, perhaps. There will be an opportunity before you and before others, if the, the others that have been violated. Father, I pray, have mercy. Have mercy. Blot out our transgressions. We pray that first the work would be done with you, and then as a result of that, the violation of others will be dealt with. Father, I pray for the, the, the mothers and fathers to restore joy to the bones of their children. I pray for the children who would be part of restoring joy to their parents. I I pray for spouses. I pray for single men and women to restore joy to to, uh, to the lives of friends as well as to their own lives, Father. We pray for that gospel to be lived out between the Sundays. We pray for the broken and contrite heart. Jesus, you and you alone have given us the power for that, as well as the face, the face of kindness that can give us confidence to confess, knowing all will be well. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, the Lamb of God. Praise your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you. And now we respond to God's word.